Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. He was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my hosts as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Live in Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Home of cheesy magic, ultimate fighting, and people mortgaging their homes to let it ride. It's a playground for adults, a Disneyland of decadence. And on this day in June 2016, something even more remarkable than disappearing elephants is happening. I say remarkable because it might be one of the few wholesome things going on in the city. It's the Las Vegas Comic Con, Thousands of fans are streaming into the building to get autographs from artists and pick up titles for their collections. Some are browsing comic books that are a dollar or less. Some are picking up titles worth a few hundred. And one man, one very recognizable man, is spending a lot more than that. Nicolas Cage, once a disenfranchised comic fan, is back in the game. As fans gawk and ask for his autograph, Cage admires big-ticket books like X-Men No. 1 and Fantastic Four No. 1, titles worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, titles he used to own before ditching his entire collection. Surrounded by tables full of books, it's like the world's most expensive flea market. He holds them up for scrutiny, squinting to make out the pencil lines through their protective plastic casing. Some 16 years after losing four of the most valuable comics in the world, Cage is seemingly ready to rejoin the ranks of the comics faithful. It's also been five years since his most treasured book, Action Comics Number 1, surfaced in a storage locker. No arrests, No real suspects, just a story. One pretty much impossible to prove or disprove, but one worth examining to see if there's any clue or trace of how a multi-million dollar comic wound up in a storage unit, the place where people store old rugs and broken chairs. Two men, Mark Balalo and a man known only as Sylvester, presented it for sale not knowing one of their potential buyers was an undercover police officer. But just who are Mark and Sylvester? And why does one of them seem to have an unlikely connection to Cage? It's a page-turner, and we're at the last page. (laughs) 
For iHeartRadio, this is Stealing Superman. I'm your host, Dana Schwartz, and this is the final episode, Special Farewell Issue. A quick recap. Nick Cage's copy of Action Comics No. 1 was stolen, along with three other comics, from his Bel Air home, around 2000. After several leads failed to materialize, Action Number 1 was finally discovered in April 2011, when a storage unit liquidator named Mark Vallelo emailed comic dealer Stephen Fischler and told him he had a copy for sale. Fischler was the same dealer who sold the book to Cage. Unfortunately for Bellelo, he was able to positively identify it as Cage's copy. Fischler and LAPD detective Donald Harisik went to Bellelo's warehouse to see it in person. There, they met Bellelo and a man named Sylvester, who claimed to have found the comic in a storage locker he had bought at auction. But here's the twist. He couldn't remember which one. With nothing tying either Bellelo or Sylvester to the original theft, and without a storage locker owner to question, the case went cold. Cage got his comic back from the insurance company and sold it for $2.161 million. Mark Bellelo seemed to relish the attention, immediately notifying the press about the controversy. He even hosted auctions in a Superman costume. Sylvester all but disappeared from the storage locker scene as quickly as he had entered it. The next steps seemed obvious enough. Reach out to both men and see what they have to say. In the case of Mark, that's unfortunately impossible, and we'll get to why in a moment. But we did speak to several people who knew him and worked for him. And this is where things get, well, more interesting. He seemed fun. He seemed like a fun guy. Like I said, from what I saw, the way he treated his family that would come from Brazil, he was very generous with them. I could tell he loved them a lot. That's Liz. Liz worked for Mark for a few years, overseeing his online sales division. She got to know Mark fairly well, and while he was nice, there were dimensions to him that could be unsettling. He had his drug habits and stuff that he didn't really care to hide from anybody, but he was fun to talk to. I enjoyed having conversations with him. Yeah, no, he was, he had his moments, you know, because of his drug haze, he would get a little aggravated. But I mean, other than that, I enjoyed working for him while things were good. At the time Mark popped up with the action number one, he was actually on probation. Mark had been arrested back in December 2007 on three felony charges. Possession of a controlled substance, possession with intent to sell or distribute, and sale or transport of a controlled substance. Mark denied any wrongdoing and said friends had been using drugs in a hotel room registered in his name. He pled guilty to the last charge in 2009 and was sentenced to 60 days in jail along with three years probation. That's an important detail for a couple of reasons. If Mark somehow knew the comic book was stolen before attempting to sell it, it would be colossally silly for him to get involved while on probation. The last thing you want to do when you're being monitored for good behavior is be in possession of stolen property. On the other hand, well, Mark wasn't exactly being overly careful. In June 2011, two months after trying to sell the comic, Mark was in violation of his parole for possessing a firearm. Mark's story was that he had found it in a storage unit and was simply transporting it. But not long after, he left California without approval, another parole violation. That landed him 45 days in jail. It's hard to know to what degree Mark was involved in well, let's say alternative businesses. A report from Radar in 2013 stated that Mark was sometimes high on the set of Storage Wars, 
the A&D reality show about storage locker auctions, and that he bragged he could get large quantities of drugs from connections in Tijuana. But Liz isn't so sure about that. I think he was just using it. I don't think he sold it. Mark could be erratic. He would make very rash decisions and not think them out thoroughly. And so he fired his manager, who was, oh my gosh, she was there for him anytime he needed her. And he decided to fire her. I can't remember what it was for. And then her husband also worked for him as well. And he fired him too. And then he fired me shortly after that. Yeah, there were other employees that he would get into arguments with. And I don't think he took his employees very seriously or he cared to have like a good relationship with us. There were other aspects of Mark's life that didn't quite add up. Before becoming a storage unit magnate, he had declared bankruptcy back in 2008. Mark's bankruptcy documents also reveal that two people filed to oppose his debts to them being discharged because they were owed money for new cars he had failed to deliver. Prior to getting into the storage unit business, Mark owned a car dealership. According to the two customers, he had accepted their orders for cars with a value of over $40,000 each. Then, Mark later admitted, he had used that money to pay down other debts. Despite offering excuse after excuse, that the cars were stuck in transit or that the registration needed more paperwork, he had never actually obtained the cars. There's something else we learned, too. Prior to owning his dealership, Mark worked in Beverly Hills as a car salesman. And according to an employee of his we spoke with, Mark had sold at least one car to none other than Nicolas Cage. Maybe that's just a coincidence. After all, Cage used to buy cars like other people buy socks. So there was a decent chance any salesman in Los Angeles could have eventually crossed paths with him. And there's no evidence Mark knew Cage or was ever at his house in Bel Air. In fact, we're reasonably confident we can place Mark firmly in Arizona at the time of the theft. But it is interesting that Mark called Stephen Fischler, the one dealer who could positively identify the comic as Cage's. That's another weird coincidence. Stephen believes it's because he brokered other high-dollar comic sales, and that's probably why Mark called him. There are plenty of mysteries surrounding Mark that would make for an interesting conversation with him. But Mark had problems that ran deep. In February 2013, he was arrested again for drug possession, for meth. The repeated offenses were piling up and things didn't look good for him. That same month, an employee of Mark's walked into the warehouse, the same warehouse where he tried to sell the action number one, and found Mark dead by suicide his car engine idling in the garage. It was carbon monoxide poisoning. He was just 40 years old. He just seemed like a fun guy, I don't know. I would have never in a million years thought that he would kill himself the way he did. I would have never thought that. We're left with so many questions and so few answers. But remember, fellow auctioneer Dan Dotson said he'd been approached by the man who found the comic book and gave him Mark's information. Mark didn't volunteer. So what about the man who had handed Mark the comic and said he found it in a storage locker? The man known only as Sylvester. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The 
Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The man who said he bought it in the storage units that he purchased. So he's asking everyone to believe a multi-million dollar Superman comic stolen from Nicolas Cage ends up in a storage locker that this man just happens to buy. That's Paul Hendry. You probably remember Paul. Reformed art thief turned consultant for art crime investigations. Paul has seen and heard it all. And he has an opinion on the storage locker story. The one where Sylvester claimed he bought a number of lockers and then found the action number one among their contents. But he couldn't remember which one. Number one is what's the odds you're going to find a multi-million dollar comic in a storage locker. That's the first one. The second one is what's the odds it's someone who buys multiple storage lockers, not one single one. Then the third thing is what's the odds they can't remember which storage locker it came in. So there's so many red flags there, I think we can just dismiss the storage locker story as just a fake fabricated story. I have the luxury right, of just using my 40 years of experience and analysing the situation and coming up with what my considered opinion is. Highly valuable items have turned up in some very unlikely places, including storage lockers. But when they do, there's always a chance that their discovery could have been orchestrated. Why? One possible motive for stolen art surfacing isn't to sell it, it's to get a reward for it. Well, let me tell you, right, if a private art detective was on this case, he would charge the insurance company 20% plus that of the insurance claim, which would have been, if we assume it's 150000 he would have wanted $150,000 per insurance claim. He would have wanted $36,000 as his fee for being a private art detective who recovered this comic. The fact that it's worth and sold the 2.1 million. Some art detectives would also sign a contract to say that they want 10 or 20% if it's sold within a period of time. So on 2.1 million, that would have been a lot of money. Okay, so that would be private art detectives. And I criticise them sometimes when they do that because that doesn't look to be transparent. But these people who recovered it, I would have assumed that they wouldn't have gone away quietly, especially if they are not being indicted on any criminal charges, they may have a claim for a finder's fee. So is that why Mark Balelo called Stephen Fischler? Not as a coincidence, but to prove it was Cage's comic to pursue some kind of reward. That's Paul's theory. And it doesn't mean either Mark or Sylvester had anything to do with the book being stolen just that some research could have led Mark to believe this book, found in a storage unit, could be worth a finder's fee. Here's Paul's possible scenario. They were prepared for it to be identified, but wanted to portray themselves, Sylvester, as being honest and above board. But that was the intention, was to filter it into Nicholas Cage's dealer via a third-party firewall, which is Mark, and then that's the plan. So then when the dealer comes out and says, yes, this is the one, then they may not have thought Donald, the cop, would have been there. Right? But the next thing would have been, if they hadn't have had it confiscated off of them, then there might have been a legal dispute and they would have still had possession of it. Maybe they didn't account for the fact that Donald was going to be there and confiscate it. But even if that happened, their whole intention was to monetize it and claim a finder's fee or a reward. So they knew at some stage that it was going to have to be declared that this was the stolen one from Nicolas Cage. Maybe the initial plan was to have the dealer look at it and go, yes, that's the original. I want it back. And then the person go, well, no, hang on, speak to my lawyer and maybe get into litigation over it or something and declare that they want a finder's fee. 
Hey, and then when Donald turned up and just confiscated it, they went, well, we can still go down the same road and claim a finder's fee. Again, that's Paul's theory. And for Paul, the most intriguing part of the story is that of all the comic dealers in the country Mark could have called, he called Stephen Fischler, literally the only person on earth who could positively identify the action number one as cages. This Mark person, right, why would he focus in on the one avenue that's going to lead straight back to Nicolas Cage? Why not take a local estimate, right? It's part of a plan. It was a plan. It's a scam. It was a sting. It's a thing to monetize the Superman comic. And then they tried to make it so confusing that the police wouldn't be able to pin it on anyone. But yes, of course, because this is such a small world, it's got to go through Nicolas Cage's dealer in New York. And he's going to be made aware of it. Yes, again, it's, I mean, their story is like a Swiss cheese. It's full of holes. Cage's comic sold for $2.161 million just a few months after it was found, making even a percentage of that a very valuable tip. But Stephen Fischler, who was there when the LAPD seized the comic from Mark and Sylvester, doesn't think that's what happened. Here's Stephen. No, there was a trip. They wanted to sell it. And it was a stolen book when you've gone, all right, we want a million dollars. Oh, by the way, this book's stolen. It's a little hard while the police are there to go, hey, how about a reward? Now, you know, I think if they had said, we think this book is the stolen book, you know, I could see giving them a reward for the recovery of it, but it just wasn't in the cards. There's a real mystique surrounding Sylvester. For one thing, Stephen remembers that he introduced himself as Arthur. And Mark Balelo told people that Sylvester only went by his first name. Mark said he didn't even know Sylvester's last name, which is very strange. If you were planning to split the profits from a multi-million dollar comic with someone, wouldn't you want to know their last name? Few people did, and maybe that was by design. But at some point, his full name did leak out, which allowed us to try and get a better understanding of the man at the crux of all this, the person who found Cage's comic after it had been missing 11 years. Sylvester doesn't have much in the way of a social media presence, but we can tell you he is, or was, a contractor by trade and no longer living in California. He's into cars, as so many of the people in this story seem to be. We reached a former employer of his who said he was a nice guy who wound up quitting. The employer thought it might have been because of the comic, because he expected to come into a windfall. Despite his lack of an online presence, and after a lot of trial and error, we did manage to find Sylvester. We wanted to ask about finding the comic. But within minutes of messaging him, he deleted his social media profile. So we tried email and got no response. Then we reached out to some friends of his to see what else we might be able to learn or to find out how we could contact him. That's when Sylvester asked for our reporter's number and then sent a text saying he did not want to talk about finding the comic. We asked again, and again. As much as we'd like to hear from Sylvester, he apparently said all he wanted to say to Detective Harisik on the day the comic was seized. The story he told the detective is certainly intriguing. According to people we spoke with who have knowledge of the storage locker liquidation market, taking the contents from a bunch of lockers and pooling it all together to sort through later isn't unheard of. With storage auctions, you're given only a limited amount of time to clear out the unit. After all, that's why the locker company wants stuff gone, so they can rent it out to someone else. You might have just 24 or 48 hours, so piling everything into a truck to sort through later if you've bought several units might be wise. Here's Liz again. There's just so much stuff there to look through. It's like hard to keep track of it, especially when you're just looking through everything and everything just kind of gets bunched into one place. But the opposite is also true. 
Some locker storage buyers keep a strict inventory of where items came from, in case something stolen or illegal, like drugs, are ever discovered. They don't want to be the ones suspected of possessing them. The other consideration is whether anyone really would leave a rare and delicate comic in a storage locker and then neglect to pay the bill. Hey, it's possible. Sometimes lockers are abandoned because the person renting it dies or goes to prison. If a storage locker owner was storing the comic there, then it would be a matter of inquiring to the owner whether they knew anything about the comic. But the problem the storage facility had, and the reason they put the lockers up for public sale, is that their owners weren't easily reached and couldn't pay the bill. Because Sylvester couldn't remember which locker the comic came from, there wouldn't be much use in trying to contact them. You could never prove it was theirs to begin with. I think as we've gone through the whole story, it really is a Russian doll. You know, you're opening more and more layers, you're peeling back the onion, and at every kind of stop, there is something there that doesn't smell right, that doesn't taste right, and doesn't look right. And in the normal world of things, this is not normally what would happen, from the theft of it, to the handling of it, to the surfacing of two of the comics. But knowing who put the comic in the storage locker would still only tell just part of the story. Art theft is one giant game of hot potato. The more hands the stolen art passes through, the more convincing someone is when they say they have no idea where it came from. Because they probably don't. And every time it changes hands, someone is sold on the fantasy that, for just a few thousand dollars, they can take possession of something worth millions. It's almost like a criminal lottery. If they can just figure out how to unload it, and then, well, they can't. So they sell the dream to someone else. There's no evidence Mark Bellalo or Sylvester knew anything about the action number one being stolen. There's no evidence the storage locker story was fabricated. There are just questions, which one man can't answer and another man won't. And that is his prerogative. It doesn't invalidate his story that he found the comic. Maybe the reason he doesn't want to talk about it is because watching $2 million slip through your hands is too painful to revisit. However, Cage's comic made its way to Mark Bellalo and Sylvester. It's a minor miracle it surfaced at all. Cage, of course, sold it for a handsome profit. But there's still one act left untold in this story. Where is the action number one now? Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just a couple months before Nicolas Cage popped up at the Las Vegas Comic-Con, his now very notorious comic book was on display in London. But it wasn't for public viewing. This was a private, invitation-only affair at a hotel in the city. Five years after being discovered in a storage locker, one of the best copies of Action Comics number 1 was inside a glass case and surrounded by security just in case anyone had any ideas. 
The comic was part of a collection being displayed courtesy of a man named Aman Hariri. Aman is a very big Superman fan, though not for the reasons you may think. Here's Aman. Superman was always part of me growing up, I guess. It was a character that I used to watch on cartoons and obviously like every other kid, it captures your imagination to imagine a person who can fly and be invulnerable to, you know, being shot at or any kind of danger. It just sparks the imagination of all kinds of stories you build in your head and you imagine all the things that he can do. Even back then, I mean, at the time it was, you know, faster than a speeding train and, and can leap tall buildings into, you know, the modern version of what he can do these days. But I was living in Saudi at the time, so the only way that I was exposed to Superman was on VHS tapes that would be made available to us by you know, people from living abroad and sending them to us or <laughs> receiving a copy of a comic book. Well, I think when you're younger, things are less granular. You think about doing the right thing. What does it mean as an adult and what does it mean as a child? It probably lacks granularity when you're a child and you start to understand the nuances of doing the right thing as you get older. I would say that being a hero was what I would imagine, what I remember thinking of this character and what he would do. And if you put together any kind of scenario and he saw somebody in danger, that he would do anything and everything to save that person. He would save the day and be a hero. It's not uncommon to grow up with Superman and then want to own a piece of his legend. After all, that's what Nicolas Cage did. But A-Man is in a slightly different category. He's a fan, sure, but he's also a billionaire and the son of Lebanon's one-time prime minister, Rafiq Hariri. Ayman idolized his father Rafiq, who was celebrated in Lebanon for his work helping to end the 15-year Lebanese civil war. He also used his considerable wealth to provide educational opportunities for the less fortunate. According to Ayman, his father put 30,000 young adults through college. Then, in 2005, tragedy struck. A tragedy that, in some ways, echoes the loss suffered by Superman's co-creator, Jerry Siegel, who lost his father to a violent crime. Rafiq died in Beirut after someone detonated a bomb hidden in a car near Rafiq's motorcade. Along with Rafiq, 21 others were killed. Members of Hezbollah were convicted. According to Reuters, judges said the attack was, quote, clearly a politically motivated act of terrorism, end quote. Amen was just 26 years old when his father was murdered. And as you probably gathered, it was a galvanizing experience for him. He has always been my hero. He's somebody who had sacrificed so much of his life for his country, for people in need, and ended up paying the ultimate price. But during his life, and when I would think of Superman and I would think of my father, there was always, yes, this connection between them. And I didn't really put them together until I visited my family home after many years of being away in school abroad and university in the US. When I came back home, I saw this picture hanging on my bedroom wall of him represented as Superman carrying buildings in his arms. The buildings were universities and schools and hospitals above a destroyed city underneath him. And it was a cartoon that was drawn by, you know the cartoons that used to be in the back of newspapers? This was from a local newspaper in Lebanon, and it was an artist that had depicted my father as Superman. And obviously that's really on the nose. That can ingrain itself and you completely forget about where things originate from. But at the end of the day, it was depicted by somebody else. And he was regarded as a hero and still is by his country. I actually, in his life, when I started to buy comic books and collect them, the original comic books, you know, graded and I work with, I think you know them, Metropolis out of New York to collect these books. I remember that I couldn't get myself to buy a single 
Superman book that I felt like I hadn't reached that level yet. And I always would think of Batman as more sort of where I was and <laughs> Superman where I'd want to be uh, aspirationally. And when my father passed, that's when I started buying every Superman comic book that I could get my hands on. For Amen, Superman and his father had become linked. The character was emblematic of how he perceived Rafiq as benevolent, kind, and generous with his own superpower, which was wealth. He was always one of my favorite characters, don't get me wrong. I mean, when I'd buy statues or if I could watch a movie or, or anything, I was into the character. But yes, at that point, you know, I guess the floodgates opened and I needed to... I mean, obviously I miss my father and, and it was the most horrible day of my life when he was taken from us. And I wanted to be connected to him even more in, in the way that I imagined him. And so, you know, buying these books was a way of me doing that. It's always been there. I mean, certainly Superman has played a big role in my life, just in the back of my mind, like a lot of people, you grow up with these characters in your life in one form or fashion, and you either grow out of them, they become a memory, or they, they stick with you in some form or fashion. And so A-Man began to gather what's become one of the most valuable and expansive comic book collections in the world. Issue after issue of number one titles, Batman, Wonder Woman, Superman. He worked with Stephen Fischler, Cage's comic dealer. And in 2011, he had the rare opportunity to acquire an action number one. Cage's action number one. Yeah, I mean, I'm made aware of the opportunity, and I was obviously excited and did my best to get the book and, and ultimately got it, which was one of the a major thrill because, again, you look at the significance of Action 1. I mean, Action 1 before Action 1, the day or the morning or the hour before those stores opened and people entered to see that book and start reading them, there was no Superman. There was no superhero, and it was the first, he was the first superhero. The significance of that is amazing to me. When you even think about that, like we can't even imagine a world <laughs> without the idea of Superman or any of these characters. For A-Man, the fact that this comic had its own story to tell is part of the appeal. Absolutely, yeah. Anything that has a, a history, and certainly when it goes through certain circumstances like this one has, you're right, it does develop a character. Amen put the action number one, along with many other valuable books, on display in 2016. There's even a chance, he says, that his collection may go on public display, bringing comics one step closer to the vaunted esteem people hold for fine art. Imagine going into a museum and seeing an action number one on display in one room and a Monet in another. I mean, I worry about how do you display them and how do you keep them safe and where would you do it and what kind of an experience would people have that with all the things that I got pulled into in life, it got really hard to focus on that and execute that project. It is in the back of my mind. I'd love to do it in one form or fashion. Maybe there's a digital version that could be done, you know, something with VR or AR or something. But you, know, you could say, well, just display two or three books, but I think it would be cool to display as many as I could. I haven't really figured out a way to do it. Whether that happens or not, it seems as though this comic's journey has come to an end. Though he could almost certainly sell it for far more than the $2.161 million that he paid in 2011, he won't. Ever. I mean, my whole planning of this is I would never sell these books. It would have to be my kids that would decide to sell them if they would want to one day when I'm gone. Wherever this book might have been in the 11 years it was missing, in a basement, attic, storage locker, glove compartment, it's probably as safe as it's ever going to be. And if Cage ever wants to take another look at it, he probably just needs to ask. I'm a fan of him as an actor and would love to, to meet him and, and geek out on comic books and, you know, maybe we can look at this stuff together, but... No, I haven't. I haven't had that, that experience. 
And in the incredibly unlikely event something happened to this action number one, well, Amen is prepared. In 2014, he bought a second copy. Yeah, that's right. So I own a 9.0 graded copy. And when another 9.0 came onto the market, I was like, okay, this is an interesting situation because on the one hand, from a, like an emotional standpoint, I felt it would be phenomenal to be able to have two of these books if I was able to buy it. So just in terms of being able to have in one collection two books of that level and everything that I said about how did they survive and all of that, I mean, to have two of them in a single collection was something very, very exciting to me. And so I bought the second one for that reason. And I was really, really fortunate to be in a position to be able to, you know, one, afford it and and second, have the opportunity even to be aware of it and, and be able to buy it. This book shouldn't exist. Not only shouldn't it not exist, but it shouldn't be able to to find it, let alone find it in the state that it's in. It's almost a Superman in and of itself. How does it exist? Amid a volatile economy turned upside down by a pandemic, there's been one pretty reliable investment. Collectibles. Comic book values have skyrocketed in recent years, A comic selling for millions is no longer a seismic event, but the norm. The $150,000 Nicolas Cage paid for his copy of Action No. 1 back in 1997 was, if you'll forgive the pun, an absolute steal. Action No. 1 is so desired that even a single loose page from it can sell for thousands of dollars. Brittle shavings of pages from a nearly ruined version were sold in a baggie. Maybe someday, someone will offer a lone staple they insist is from an action number one. And if their story is good enough, it'll probably find a buyer. In September 2022, a copy graded 6.0, that's a good amount below the 9 given to Cage's copy, sold for a staggering $3.4 million. A higher grade copy coming up for sale could fetch five, six, maybe seven million dollars. That figure would have been impossible for the thief or thieves who took Cage's book to conceive of. It was an audacious heist, taking four high-profile comics from an A-list actor's home. It was almost certainly done for profit, as indicated by one of the comics popping up for sale on eBay months later. A crime of opportunity inflicted by someone on the periphery of Cage's life. Someone who couldn't resist the temptation of stealing a small piece of history that was there for the taking, unlocked and unguarded. That it was stolen isn't surprising. Maybe it was inevitable. Maybe someone will come clean one day. Maybe someone already has, though if Cage knows, he's not talking. Of course, we wanted to ask him about it, but his manager politely declined. That's easy to understand. Unless it was a transient worker, someone there to deliver booze or set up one of Cage's oversized nutcrackers for a holiday party, the person who took the books was known to him considered a friend, or at least trustworthy enough to be let into his house. And having that trust betrayed is disillusioning. Two of the four books taken are still at large, still filed in the FBI's database of stolen art. A Detective Comics number 27, the first appearance of Batman, and a Detective Comics number one. It's possible they were sold in a private transaction, But remember that Cage's dealer, Stephen Fischler, is often a conduit for big comic sales. It would be hard to sell the books without him hearing about it eventually. And he hasn't. Not yet. And if they did surface, Stephen says he could identify them, just as he did Cage's action number one. So maybe they've been destroyed. Or maybe they're still out there somewhere, their handler in a kind of paralysis. Selling them is risky. So is keeping them. 
Maybe they're in another country. Maybe they were altered in a way that makes them undetectable. Here's Paul Hendry again. 60 and 70 pages, okay, well, they could take off the first 10 pages. They could sell probably pages 20 to 25, right, as just being discovered in a yard sale or something like that. Or they could find that half of the book, right, or just the middle section of the comic had been discovered. And so all the back pages and all the front pages have been razored out and they're maybe stored separately and they just sell the actual in-between, the middle bits, and then it will be virtually impossible to distinguish whether this actually was the one stolen off of Nicolas Cage. Unless, of course, there's something that could distinguish it on each page, or you could see different pages, because I'm sure that the collectors would buy a page from that for obviously a lot less, but a page of it should certainly be worth a few thousand dollars, maybe $10,000. While those books are valuable, the public interest in their recovery probably won't equal the discovery of an action number one. Superman's status as a defender of justice, his earnestness, will always make someone pilfering his first appearance a strange juxtaposition. It's like stealing a Boy Scout merit badge or a Norman Rockwell painting. And while you might be able to swipe a material depiction of Superman, you can't really take his symbolism. More than any cultural character, Superman has come to embody so many things. He's the ultimate immigrant, a savior, the zenith of patriotism, truth, justice, and the American way. Steal his material form, but you can't steal what he stands for. No one can take what Superman means to you or to Eamon Hariri or Nicolas Cage. It's possible, even probable, that Action Comics number one will enter the public domain on January 1st, 2034. That's when the 95-year limit on copyrighted materials will expire. That doesn't mean all of Superman's mythology will be up for grabs, as much of it, like kryptonite or even flying, was introduced later and trademark lawyers may have something to say about all this. But the basic premise of an alien from another planet with superhuman gifts and red boots could soon belong to everyone. And who knows? Maybe by then we'll know the secret identity of the person who stole him. And if it's an art detective who gets a lead on them, trust me, they'll be demanding 20% of their current value, not of the insurance value, the current value, because on paper, it's no longer a theft where the insurance company owns them. They paid out originally, but I would imagine Nicholas Cage has paid the whole claim back. And so he now not only has two back in his possession, if the other two are recovered, he gets them back as well. And they're worth millions of dollars. So yes, I mean, to be honest with you, it's a chase on, right, to see who can monetize these comics. And that's why the situation that we're in at the moment. Cage is flying high again. His recent meta-comedy, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, where he plays an exaggerated version of himself, was critically praised. He's playing Dracula in a movie titled Renfield about the vampire's faithful sidekick. There was even talk he was being considered to play Bizarro, the slightly off-kilter version of Superman, for an HBO Max anthology series based on DC Comics. And one day, maybe he'll be reunited with the two missing comics. For now, the most remarkable book, The Action Comics Number One, is with Amen. And you look at where, you know, movies have gone. All movies are pretty much superhero movies. Every TV show is somebody has powers of some sort. And it all started from, I believe, that book. And it sparked the imagination of generations to come after that and now shaped industries and ways of thinking and what are ideals and yeah, just storytelling in general. I absolutely love that and it feels like by owning a book like that, you owning a, not only a piece of history but something that represents a moment in time that then had a significant impact on everything to come after that. Maybe that's what the thief was after. Not money, not reward, but the chance for a moment to feel history in their hands.
This has been Stealing Superman. For iHeartRadio, I'm Dana Schwartz. Thanks for listening. Stealing Superman is written by Jake Rawson. Sound design, scoring, and mixing by Josh Fisher. Additional editing by Jonathan Washington. Original music by Aaron Kaufman. Mixing and mastering by Bahid Frazier. Research and fact-checking by Jake Rawson and Austin Thompson, with production support from Lulu Phillip. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Our executive producer is Jason English. And I'm your host, Dana Schwartz. If you're interested in more from me, I host the weekly history podcast, Noble Blood, available every Tuesday. I also hosted the eight-part miniseries, Haleywood, about Bruce Willis's mysterious business dealings in a town in Idaho. I wrote a novel called Anatomy, A Love Story, and its sequel, Immortality, A Love Story, which is available for pre-order now, coming out February 2023. If you're enjoying this show, give us a nice review. Stealing Superman is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my hosts as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far... I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.